another hand for the kids. They did a great job, didn't they? Thanks to our kids' ministry volunteers as well. We love everybody who serves in the kids' ministry. I was just thinking I could use a few of those down here myself to kind of help me along as I'm doing the message, you know, little teleprompters or something. That would be awesome. I would love that. Anyway, hey, if you're, welcome, if you're new here, welcome to you. We're really glad that you decided to, to join us. If you're watching online, good to have you along too. We hope we would get to meet you in person very soon at this Christmas season. Don't know what you believe, but this is a good place to ask questions about Jesus, the Bible, anything to do with religious things. We want you to ask questions. We built this place for you, and one of the things we're going to get into here is a question about real or fake. Right, very controversial thing. With, you got your Christmas tree up yet? Is it real or is it fake? We asked you out in the lobby. We asked online on Facebook. Some of y'all have some very strong opinions, let me tell you. Um, I grew up in a home where we had artificial tree, one of those kinds where you had to put it together branch by color-coded branch. You know, it took forever, but it got the job done. And so that's all I knew. And when I started my own family, we got an artificial tree as well. But you know what? A few years ago, we decided to go with a real tree. Go out and, and pick one out, and it smells wonderful, but um, gotta tell you, last year we went back to artificial. Not just artificial, but pre-lit, sweet. <laughs> pre-lit pre fake tree, and uh, we love it. I gotta tell you, the, the fake ones look so much more real than the ones I had growing up. So here's, here's what we did online, fake or real, and it came out, the odds were two to one in favor of Fake, fake. People want fake trees. Well, actually, I shouldn't say it. they don't want them. They prefer real trees, but some of y'all, you have a lot of people here have allergies to, to real trees. Uh, and, and some of you, you, you like the aroma, you like the tradition of going out and picking it out or maybe even cutting it down. But truthfully, they're messy, they're costly, uh, you got to keep them watered. There's needles all over the floor for months. And so you say, I'm going to go with artificial. So I don't know if that says something about us, <laughs> more than just trees, like we prefer real, but we settle for artificial, because in our, in our culture, we can't really tell real from artificial anymore. We, we have trouble distinguishing the fake news from the real news, right? Even now, it's like, is that a CGI actor or is that a real actor? Even the holiday itself, some would say Christmas is just a fake holiday now. It, it was intended to be a holy day that was all about Jesus, but it's really not that anymore. Uh, everybody loves this time of the year, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Even atheists love the Christmas season because they, they like getting off work. They like uh, the parties and the gift giving. They like going to see Christmas decorations and watching Christmas movies. And, uh, you know, a reason to indulge, eat, drink, and be merry. They love the sentimentality of, of carols and hot cocoa, or maybe something with a little bit more kick to it, but people just love this time of the year. But what does it really mean? I mean, how sad would it be if it was just a holiday and it had no real significance to it? Because what it's supposed to be about, the real meaning is that God entered into our world because we needed a Savior, that we were lost and condemned, we were separated from God. But Jesus came to reconcile us back to God, to, to bring peace with God so that we could have the joy of a right relationship, so that we could have the hope of eternal life. And if none of that's true, how sad that would be. That's, that's what all the classic carols are about. So as we continue to see the real meaning, 
slip away from our culture and we embrace the artificial meaning of Christmas, uh, people have lost even an understanding of who Jesus is. Or even if they know about Jesus, so many now, they never really heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Or if they have, they now doubt that Christianity is the real deal because there are so many other religions in the world. I mean, who are we to say? You know, they're all equally true or they're all equally false. It doesn't matter because it's just religion which is in the realm of the improvable. So believe whatever you want to believe. And it reminds me of that classic Christmas movie. Have you seen Miracle on 34th Street, then black and white, 1947, one where they're trying to prove the existence of Santa Claus in a courtroom. Remember Chris Kringle, department store Santa, is put on trial because they're trying to, they don't like what he's doing at the department store, so they try to have him committed as a, as a demented fraud. And so the prosecution is going after him, trying to show that he's not, there, there is no Santa, he can't be Santa. But this defense attorney is trying to lay out evidence to give proof that he is. And I mean, how do you do that? How do you make the case for a being like Santa Claus? What hard evidence do you have? And the prosecution says, unless you present some compelling evidence from a competent authority, this case has to be thrown out. He's got to be found guilty. And so that's when the United States Postal Service shows up with bags and bags of letters addressed to Santa Claus. They give them to this guy, Chris Kringle. The judge says, there you go. The competent authority of the United States Post Office, a government authority, recognizes that Chris Kringle must be Santa Claus, and everybody goes wild and claps because they kind of proved Santa existed, right? Well, in 1994, they did a remake. Did you see that with... Um, you know, we had a colorized version. I mean, it was the real, you know, today's version, but very different in terms of the evidence they present. Same storyline, but when it gets to the evidence that the judge uses, well, just watch. great you know okay Santa Claus exists but it makes you think that maybe the evidence for God is in the same category as Santa like it's not something that you can really prove it's just we just accept it on faith right and uh, what I want to present to you today is some evidence if you're here's what I want to do if you're a believer I, I would hope to confirm your belief to reassure you that you believe for good reason that it's not just blind faith or wishful thinking and if you're not a believer, I would hope to convince you that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that there's good reason to believe. Now, here we are. We're in the middle of a, a court case. The whole nation is being dragged into court for this impeachment trial. And there's all kinds of disagreement and division and confusion over what really happened, who to believe, how much of it is fake news, how much of it is hearsay. Everybody's got their own interpretations and opinions of whatever evidence has been presented. And it makes me think, if we can't even figure that out today, right in front of us, what do we do with all this evidence from 2,000 years ago regarding the gospel? I mean, how do we, how do we make sense of that? And so can I prove beyond a reasonable doubt, really beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is the Son of God, who he claimed to be? No, it's, it's not that kind of evidence. But I do hope to move you closer 
to that kind of faith for good reason because we saw last week the evidence for the eyewitness testimony presented to us in the four gospels Matthew Mark and Luke and John and we saw look if Jesus is real and nobody really doubts that Jesus was real no, nobody seriously who looks at history and evidence no Jesus was real but because Jesus is real Christmas has real meaning see we, we, we can accept the historicity of it but what is the meaning of it? What does it actually mean for us? So if you want to watch that online, you can do that or download the podcast. But the question is, all right, do we have a competent authority? Yes, we have the Gospels. But how about outside the Gospels? Any other competent authorities that we can trust? And I would say, yes, let's dig a little deeper today using the science of archaeology. Because hundreds of archaeological discoveries have come about from the first century that lend credence to the reliability and the accuracy of those Gospels. None of it disproves it. None of it even contradicts it. It only undergirds it. It doesn't undermine it at all. And so there's solid support for our faith. And I would hope the evidence from archaeology would help bring you to the point where you agree with this verdict that we can trust Scripture to tell us the truth. It shows Scripture is trustworthy, and if it's trustworthy in things that can be verified, then isn't it logical and reasonable to presume that it is also reliable and trustworthy in things that cannot be verified? It can't prove our faith, but here's what it can do. It can help us to see that it makes more sense to believe than not to. So the biblical description of the Christmas story really is surrounded by all kinds of historical corroboration and last week we established Matthew Mark Luke and John all wrote their Gospels their biographies of Jesus very early not hundreds of years later where you know just a bunch of legends came about but right then in the time period of Jesus within 30 to 60 years of the time of Jesus that generation we saw that Luke for example is a first-rate historian very accurate in all the details he writes about and yet some scholars critics have tried to point out places where they think Luke got it wrong but you know what every time they do that just wait just wait the evidence comes out to prove that Luke was right all along for example in Luke 3 verse 1 Luke talks about a man named Licinius who was the tetrarch of Abilene around the year AD 27 so he's a he's a governor of this region well the scholars say we know that Luke can't be right there because Licinius was not a tetrarch of Abilene we know that a half century earlier he was a ruler in Chalcis so if you can't trust Luke on that you can't trust him on anything else but just wait give it time the truth comes out sure enough not that long ago an inscription was found pointing out you know what there was more than one guy named Licinius back there and there was a Licinius who was governor just like Luke said same thing happens in Acts 17 6 where Luke refers to some city officials in Thessalonica as politarchs that's the term for the rulers he used politarchs and critics would say well see Luke is wrong because we don't have absolutely no evidence from any ancient Roman documents that ever call anybody back then a politarch so that's just made up give it time sure enough archaeology comes to the rescue again 
just a few years ago, an arch was found from the first century that, guess what, had the word polytarch written on it. And more, more than 35 other inscriptions have now been found, verifying that Luke was right again. You say, what's the big deal? Those are all very minor kind of things. Exactly, that's the point. If Luke can be trusted in those minor little details, that means he's be being very careful and not sloppy about what he's recording he was there to verify it. And so all these places he writes about countries and cities and, and islands, all of them proved to be true. They, they were actual places at that time. There's never been one piece of evidence from archaeology to ever dispute it or disprove it. It only affirms it. You find all kinds of geographical and cultural details like that, that if it were written long after by some forgerer, they, they would have never known about those kinds of details because they weren't there. Luke was. And if we can trust him in the areas that can be confirmed, I would put forward that we can trust him in the areas where we can't confirm it, at least yet. Why is that important? Because Luke writes about the Christmas story, these cities of Nazareth and Bethlehem. Right In Luke chapter 1, he refers to this town of Nazareth. In the sixth month, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's Mary's cousin, uh, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, critics have pointed out, you know what, there was no Nazareth that existed back then. There's no evidence of that, which of course is an argument from silence, which is not legitimate. You can't say something didn't exist just because we don't have proof that it did. But give it time, sure enough, archaeology proved Nazareth did exist. Tombs were discovered that showed that people lived and died right there in that town at the time of Jesus. In fact, put a couple of pictures up here of courtyard houses that were discovered in Nazareth from Jesus' era. What about Bethlehem, the place where he was born? Well, Luke chapter 2, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Notice how detailed he's getting. He's adding a bunch of stuff here that, okay, who cares? Well, it just shows he's careful here. Uh, everyone went to his own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now, some have argued that there was no census of the Roman world. That's not how it was done. They didn't take a census of the whole Roman world back there. And Quirinius was not the governor of Syria at that time. But give it time. Now we know that's exactly the way it happened. Recent examination of Roman documents have shown that is how they did it. There was a census of the Roman Empire in the year 3 BC, the time of Jesus' birth. You say, wait a minute, three? That's before Christ. Yes, because you know the calendars are off, right? You know, Jesus was actually born three years, three or four years before Christ. All right, so actually right on target for this census to take place. So, yes. And by the way, Quirinius, it was discovered, was the governor at that time. So Joseph would have journeyed from Nazareth to his ancestral hometown of King David to go to Bethlehem, just like Luke said. Now, again, some critics keep pushing. They say, well, there's no archaeological evidence that Bethlehem existed at the time of Jesus. We know it existed long after, hundreds of years after Jesus, but no evidence at the time of Jesus. 
Well, again, argument from silence, but even beyond that, why would you expect there to be any evidence of a little bitty insignificant town uh, out in the middle of nowhere? Why would we have any evidence that it existed? But give it time. Guess what? Recent discoveries have shut the mouths of those critics too. Just in the year 2012, they discovered a clay seal inscription, an impression that mentions Bethlehem seven or eight centuries before the time of Jesus. Bethlehem was already there. So if Bethlehem was there seven, eight hundred years before Jesus and it was there 300 years after Jesus, doesn't it make sense that it was there during the time of Jesus? Well, also some pottery shards showed up to prove the existence of Bethlehem during Jesus' time. Now that, of course, is important because it confirms an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2, hundreds of years before Jesus. Again, we know these prophecies came before Jesus. They weren't made up afterward because the Dead Sea Scrolls show that they're before Jesus. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So guys, we could point to all kinds of other archaeological discoveries that undergird the reliability of the Bible and, and talk about biblical characters like Herod and Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas. They were real people, just like Scripture says. But you know what? We could go outside of the Bible itself to some secular or other kinds of religious historians to verify these things. For example, the Jewish, not Christian, the Jewish historian Josephus points out that there was a man named Jesus at that time whose brother James was stoned to death. Okay, The Roman governor uh, and historian Pliny the Younger, he also mentions how James and his companions were stoned to death, how people would gather on a fixed day to worship, to sing hymns to Christ as to a God, and that they committed themselves to live moral lives. Another Roman historian, Tacitus, wrote how the Emperor Nero accused the Christians of setting fire to Rome, how the Christians were hated. The founder of that religion was named Christus, which is just another spelling of Christ, and that he was put to death by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Emperor Tiberius, and that that faith which began in Judea had spread all the way to Rome by the year AD 64. So, You've got all these Romans. Now, there's also Greek. A Hellenistic writer named Lucian points out to a multitude of Christians in the city of Rome being convicted because they had worshipped a crucified man who were, he was their original lawgiver and impressed upon them that they were brothers from the moment that they convert. And he said, Christians don't worship the gods of the Greeks, but they live after this crucified man's Laws. We could look at others. The Roman historian Suetonius. We could look at the Jewish uh, Talmud. Point is, there's all kinds of confirmation that Jesus really did exist at that time and at that place, just like the Gospels say. And that people in the first century believed him to be the Messiah. Again, these are not pro-Christian sources at all. Now, of course, none of that proves the Bible is true beyond a shadow of a doubt. It simply demonstrates that it is historically reliable. For example, Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, who uh, has his doctorate in, in 
archaeology and Mediterranean studies from Brandeis University and is a professor at Miami University of Ohio, wrote a book called The Scriptures and Archaeology and the World of the First Christians. And he points out how there is more evidence for Jesus than for all the other founders of religions you know, put together. That here's what he says, put aside the Gospels. Let's just, let's just deal with what do we know about Jesus from secular historians. And he says we would know that he was a Jewish teacher, that many believed that he could perform miracles of healing and exorcisms, that some um, believed him to be the Messiah, that other Jewish people rejected him, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Emperor Tiberius, that despite his shameful death, many followers claimed that he was alive and spread that message uh, all over the place, in, all the way into Rome, again by AD 64, and that there were many kinds of people following him, men and women from the countryside, from the city, slaves and free, who worshipped him as God. So we would know all about that, about Jesus, without having the Gospels. But don't dismiss the Gospels. Don't put them aside as illegitimate sources because they have been proven to be historically reliable. And if you throw out the Gospels, then you've got to throw out all of ancient history because there's more evidence for the accuracy of the Gospels than for any ten pieces of historical ancient literature combined. Any biography. So you've got to get rid of all your ancient historical knowledge. In fact, I would contend you've got to get rid of all historical knowledge before modern times because we have no video interviews. We have no audio recordings. We have no DNA testing from back then. The only thing we know about the past is what has been written down and recorded by eyewitnesses and passed down to us. And that's why the Gospels are so reliable. We weren't there, but others were. And God made sure it got written down for us, that he inspired it. He made sure it, he guided it and that he guarded it from error so that we could still know about it today even though we weren't there to see it. Now think about that. Why would God go to all the trouble of inspiring the scriptures if he didn't make sure it got down to us the right way, that he didn't supervise the transmission of it, make sure it got preserved accurately so that we could know the truth today. So, what do you think about this? Again, I can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I hope you see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can be trusted. Do, do you trust what they say? And, and I hope you you're a little bit closer to faith if you weren't before. I hope I've helped make the case that you can trust the Scriptures to tell us the truth. And if you've never read the Scriptures for yourself, don't rely on what somebody else tells you about them. Don't rely on what I'm even telling you about them. Check them out for yourself. They're not second-hand testimony. They're first-hand testimony. Open it up. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a free New Testament. Just go out in the lobby at the Info Central or Guest Reception VIP and ask for one. Or just read it online. Check it out for yourself. Download the YouVersion app onto your device. And as you read it, I think you'll, you'll find that what you're reading is true. It rings true. So this Christmas, don't just read Luke chapter 2, the nativity story. Read all the book of Luke. But begin reading all of the New Testament. Now, another one of those gospel writers was John. And you'll notice John doesn't write about the nativity story. He skips over the birth. Why? Because John is the last gospel to be written. He already knew that Matthew and Luke had covered that, so he doesn't need to. What he does is he gives us the spiritual significance, some of the meaning 
of that historical event. As he writes in his biography, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the significance. And we know that Word is Jesus because he goes on, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's how he opens his biography, John chapter 1, verse 1. But then later he writes in one of his letters in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John is appealing to the fact that I was an eyewitness. We all were. We've, we saw him. We were there. You can trust what we have to say. And so the ones who claim that all this stuff about Jesus is fake news, they're actually the ones who are trusting in the real fake news that says all religions are the same, all roads lead to heaven, that we're not lost, that we're not condemned. Fake news? Could it be that we just don't want to believe that because it's not comfortable? Because it's a painful truth that apart from Christ, we have no hope. There's no forgiveness. Could it be that we, we don't want to come face to face with the fact that Jesus is the one who made us and the one that we're going to have to stand before one day and give an account of our lives? Who wants to believe that? We want to believe whatever we want to believe so that we can justify whatever we do. We don't want the scriptures, we don't want Jesus to have any binding authority over our lives. So yes, we'll embrace the fake over the real. It's easier. It's less costly. It's, it's more convenient. Give me the fake. But where does that lead us? If you don't believe it, where does that lead you? See, we have not the fake news. We have the good news. The good news that the world desperately needs. The, the truth that God entered into this world. He was born to die, to give his life on the cross. That, there's no doubt, historically, Jesus was crucified, that he died for us. There's evidence for that, but you know what? There's just as much evidence for his resurrection, that he came back to life so that we could have life and hope. I mean, think about it. What would cause a bunch of monotheistic Jewish people in the first century to start worshiping some man, an, an executed criminal, because they, claim, they claimed he was alive in the very city where his body was supposed to be entombed. They said, he's not in there. The tomb is empty. We've seen him ourselves. And they went all over the place spreading this, this truth they believed. In fact, the apostles were so convinced that they died violent deaths for proclaiming it. They refused to stop saying it. Folks, nobody's going to die for what they know to be a lie. A lot of would-be messiahs have come and gone, and their movements have ended. But the evidence for the resurrection is strong, but that's for another holiday. What I want you to see is his death and resurrection have meaning for you right now. There is spiritual significance to it. And if you choose not to believe it, where is that going to take you? Have you thought about where is it going to lead you? Is, is is your non-belief going to bring you any peace? Is it going to bring you any joy? Is it going to fulfill your life? Is it going to bring you any meaning? I mean, what's the end game of this belief? 
it's, it's depressing where it's going to take you because it means that the implications are it, it, there's nothing. It's just nothingness. You go nowhere. There's nothing worth living for. Ultimately, there's nothing worth dying for. There's no objective morality in the world. It's whatever you want to do, whatever you want to believe, because we all just end up the same way, a pile of dust, and that's that. Well, you can believe that if you want to, but that just means you have no more value or worth than a worm. I choose to believe Jesus. I hope you do too, because one more time, John says this in his gospel, chapter 1. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, Jesus had to be born as God so that you could be born of God, so that you could be his child so that you could have forgiveness, that you could have life. But it's up to you to believe it. I can't prove, no, you, look, I can't prove it 100%. And so you're saying, I'm struggling with this. I, I don't know if I can believe all of this. That's okay, <laughs> really. Because Jesus said, if you'll just come to me with the faith of a child, if you'll just have the faith of a mustard seed, that's enough. I'll take it from there. And so if you're ready to take that step of faith, about what it means for your life today. And that's why I'm going to have some folks up here in the next few moments while we're singing after the service. Come down and talk with them. They don't know everything. They don't have all the answers, but I think they can help you move a little bit closer to God today. They can pray with you about whatever's going on. They can get you ready to follow Christ today. If you're ready to repent, to turn to Him, we can baptize you today because we've got towels and clothes and robes so that you can begin that. That's the beginning of your journey with Jesus into a new life to what we trust is a better life and what is for sure eternal life we believe it with all our hearts for good reason and i hope you will too